You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, it seems as though people are only now becoming aware that last year, in 2021, the president signed into law the $1.5 trillion American Rescue Plan, which was a boondoggle of all sorts of different things. And within that $1.5 trillion bill was a $90 billion bailout of union pensions. And the reason people are just now becoming aware of it is about a week and a half ago, the president made a big announcement of how the PBGC, or Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., is bailing out the Central States Pension Plan, which is a plan of Teamsters that the Teamsters has had for about 60 or 70 years, used to be known as the Mobs Piggy Bank, and the taxpayers are footing the bill for about $36 billion to fund up a failing pension plan. Well, one of the things, as this is now becoming more well-known, is the fact that we still have a huge pension crisis in the public sector. So yesterday I was joined by the American for Fair Americans for Fair Treatment CEO Elizabeth Messenger and we had a wide-ranging conversation about pension bailouts, the public sector unionism, as well as sort of a surprising thing about the United States Postal Service potentially giving its customers information to unions. In any case, here's Elizabeth Messenger. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Elizabeth Messenger, AFFT, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you? I'm great. It is really good to be here. Not ashamed to say I'm a big fan. So thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thank you. So I had David on some months ago, your predecessor, and um, just, I guess it'd be helpful to explain a little bit about your background and again, what AFFT is. Okay, great. Um, AFFT, Americans for Fair Treatment is a nonprofit. We serve public employees who are living in a unionized state. So we primarily work with teachers, first responders, state and local workers. We offer a free membership program that um, gives them free legal help. We connect them to, um, you know, these kind of free nonprofit public interest law firms. Um, But we also give them professional development tools. And then we have an advocacy training program. So it's been a lot of fun to hear about their journey, you know, as a public employee in a unionized state and try to put a positive spin on, you know, some of the things that they're seeing that are pretty horrific, like what we're going to talk about today. So are you in any particular state? Do you concentrate on specific states or are you nationwide? We concentrate most of our work in Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut, but we will talk to anyone in any state, and we have resources across the country. Uh, We actually have members in 15 states, um, and they vary from deep blue states to purple to red. So this is an issue. A lot of times I think people are like, oh, public unions are only in places like Connecticut or New York, but they are growing in states like Louisiana and South Carolina where we have members. So while we primarily are in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, and Connecticut, you have a question, you're a public employee, any state, we will help you. So how did you get into this? 
That is a great question. I started in the music industry a hundred years ago. Um, and the music industry is not as unionized as say film or TV. Um, so I moved from South Carolina to California in 2001. So again, a while ago, and I, you know, growing up in South Carolina, I didn't really see a lot of unions, but I remember like my first, you know, maybe third month I was there, there was a grocery store strike. And it was the first time I really saw, you know, this massive union uprising. And I didn't know what a scab was. I didn't know what it meant to cross the picket line. So I naively go to the grocery store and I sat in my car. I'm like, what's happening? And I watched as a customer tried to cross the picket line and got hit in the head with a can of vegetables or whatever. And it just stunned me. And then I lived in LA for 12 years, worked in music. And um, I just saw how the union uh, not just on the, the the private sector, but public sector really ran a lot of things. So it opened my eyes to this other world in American, uh, not just, you know, the public sector as far as taxes, but in corporations. So um, I always was sort of intrigued by how it worked. But I also understood there are, you know, good local unions out there and people want to be in unions. So when I left the music industry and came to the public policy world, in the back of my mind, I could see almost every reform I was fighting for in South Carolina and Connecticut, the two places that I'd worked in state policy, unions sort of stood in the way between the success of that reform um, and then a current you know, broken system. So whether it was education or pension reform, tax reform, um, big labor sort of stood at that gateway to making that reform possible. So for me, this is... Um, really personal work. I really enjoy it. I've never been unionized, but I have been a public employee. So um, it's just, it's a, a very rewarding experience to help the public servants in America. So you're, you're from deep red, South yes. Carolina, went to deep blue, California. Right. That's a culture shock. It was, it was. And I think come, you know, growing up and uh, so I went to public school my whole life, a public university, um, so going from, like you said, a deep red state to California, there were a lot of um, subtleties that, you know, you don't really notice at first. And so, like, for example, the teachers union, you know, I'd never encountered, you know, something like a teachers union in South Carolina, the, the strength that what you see, especially in Los Angeles County, that that teachers union has. And I had friends in L.A. who were teachers and this idea of, you know, whether it's, you know, furloughs coming down from the state or strikes, it blew my mind. You know, it's like, so you're being told by this private organization not to go to work and not to get paid for weeks on end. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a culture shock. Um, so I think for a lot of people, you know, maybe people listening, they live in a state where like Pennsylvania, you know, strikes are legal. It gets like the most strike happy state in the country. Uh, this is normal. But for someone who's grown up in South Carolina, Alabama, you know, or, or a teacher, this is very foreign. And so as unions are growing in states like Alabama, um, I think a lot of teachers don't realize kind of what comes, the cost that comes with union membership. So that's been really interesting to be able to talk to people in both types of states, you know, unionized state workers, non-unionized state workers. Um, it's it's interesting, too, to talk to, say, a state worker in a, in a place like New York and tell them, I was a state worker in South Carolina. We were not unionized. Did you live under a bridge? Did you? <laughs> right. You know? um, so it, that's been kind of interesting, too. So it's it's a very divided landscape in our country right now when it comes to, to working um, in unionized and non-unionized environments. Yeah. Of course, the Biden administration, this is actually probably a good segue to our 
our topic. Um, the Biden administration seems to be doing all that it can to boost unions. And so I think it was last week um, when the Biden giveaway of $36 billion to the Teamsters Central States Pension Plan hit the press. And this has been long in coming, by the way. Um, but it hit the press and that for the first of the bailouts that really got any press coverage. They've been doing it for a while. Um, and then you'd, you'd mentioned a couple things in a, I think it was a press release I saw, how the teachers pension funds in um, New York and there's the UFT and the NYSUT mm-hmm. are underfunded. And that opens up a whole Pandora's box of public pension funds that are not being addressed with the current bailouts, but are sometime coming down the road. That's right. So I don't, you know, I'm not sure who is in your audience, but I'm guessing there are a lot of people listening who are like me. And when I see the word pension in a headline, my eyes blaze over a little bit. There are, you know, words I don't know, lots of numbers, percentages. Um, It's sort of like a chicken and egg game. Um, And so for a long time, you know, when I was working at these uh, two different state think tanks that I, I worked with previously, we would talk about retirement funds and pension funds, and it felt very complicated. And like, in a way, how does that apply to me? Well, what's interesting about this bailout, this is the largest um, of the nature, you know, this private bailout. This is the largest mm-hmm. in American history. $36 billion with a B is an awful lot of money. Um, but what's interesting about this is this is very close to what I saw in Connecticut. And essentially, unions cause these pension funds to be underfunded. So the one that you mentioned, the central states, I did a little research. It was funded at 17%. Now, right. I'm not great at math, but I know 17 out of 100 is, that's not where you want to be. Um, so the unions vote to underfund. And essentially what they're doing is they're trying to get, you know, these really generous benefits for their members, a lot of kind of unrealistic things. And they dip into the pension fund, you know, that's the promise for tomorrow. A pension is a promise. You know, that's something that we should honor for these these employees. Uh, they dip into that pension fund to pay for this outrageous benefit today. So that's kind of how they become underfunded. The unions sign off on it. Traditionally, in the private sector, they're bailed out with strings attached. So it's like, okay, we might get some federal funding or the state might help or a private entity helps, but you've got to shape up. You've got to reform how the money in this pension is you know, being invested or spent or things like that. There are no such strings in this case. With, correct. And so the backstory to this, um, the Central States Pension Plan, which used to be called the Mobs Piggy Bank because it was the pension fund, if you watch the movie Casino, is the one that built the Vegas Strip. And so it it had been fairly well-funded up until around 1980. And in 1980, President Carter, it wasn't Reagan, it was Carter, that deregulated the trucking industry through the Motor Carrier Act and essentially caused all of these trucking companies to go out of business. I just saw something yesterday where it was, there used to be 1,900 trucking companies contributing to the the central states pension plan. Now it's down to a thousand. So that created a bunch of underfunding and it was, everybody could see the writing on the wall for years, but nobody wanted to do anything about it until it got to the point where it was about ready to go insolvent. And, and so we came along the American taxpayer and there's about 200 plans total. This was just the biggest 
that are underfunded. And the American taxpayer, through the American Rescue Plan, which was the $1.5 trillion bill that was put passed through Congress last year, decided to bail them out. But so we're, and I look at, you know, okay, that was $1.5 trillion. We were taking 80 or $90 billion of that to, to bail out these pension plans. And, but the, that's, you know, somewhat small comparative to the, public pension plans that are underfunded in the state plans. And that one, and I don't have any recent numbers on it, but I think it's about 1.5 trillion or more that is underfunded at the state and municipal level. I think you're right. right? You know, so we Americans for fair treatment, really, we only work with public employees at the moment, but um, I get asked frequently about private union matters. And so, you know, we don't really work with the NLRB or talk about those types of things because our, uh, for the most part, our employees are dealing with the state labor board. But one thing I have said for several years now is that the public sector union environment, sort of the playbook for the private union, as far as uh, these, you know, I see a lot of trends with pensions and then some, um, you know, rules that the NLRB is coming down with. So, for example, employers talking to the employees about unionization and what that impact would be in the workplace. Uh, states like Connecticut have protected the union and said the employer is not allowed at all to talk to employees. So that's called captive audience. And so uh, we see then, you know, not too long ago, the NLRB said, oh, captive audience is is uh, is bad. The employer can't do this. So when I look at this situation with this Teamsters pension bailout, it I'm getting crazy deja vu because this happens in New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, and on and on and on on a regular basis where the state, so the taxpayer of California or Connecticut, is bailing out a pension fund that was underfunded with the approval of the union. This is exactly, I mean, to your point about the, you know, the movie Casino, um, this pension fund maybe is a little more exciting than, you know, being underfunded than what we saw maybe in Connecticut, but it's the same thing. The union voted to raid the pension fund for whatever purpose. Sometimes it feels like a noble purpose. So in Connecticut, the union president at the time of AFL-CIO, um, this was back in 2016, admitted on, in a public hearing, yeah, we know it was bad to raid the pension fund to pay for these promises, but we did it anyway. Um, in this case, obviously, it's exciting. They're building the Las Vegas Strip, but at, at any rate, what's happening here is that unions are not serving their members yet again by breaking their promise to keep, to protect these pensions so that they can do whatever nefarious thing that they're doing. And then the taxpayer is coming to bail them out. So for me, what's interesting about this story is that it it's a playbook that we have seen at the state level time and time again when it comes to public pensions. You know, one of the things that, um, and this, I guess, goes to, I don't want to say ignorance in a, as though I'm calling people dumb, but it's you're you're ignorant of what's actually happening within your pension plan or the world around you, whatever. I've seen so many comments on the, on LinkedIn and social media about, well, it's okay to bail out these pension funds because we bailed out wall street back in 2008. And it's almost as though, you know, two, two wrongs do equal a right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and if you, if you didn't say anything about the bailout in 2008, you shouldn't say anything about the bailout of the union pensions. It's like, That's well, a really great point. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
When you talk about pensions, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. My husband and I were at a restaurant and we started talking to two people next to us who they both had independently relocated to, uh, we live in Virginia, my husband and I, and they had relocated from up north and somehow pensions came up. I have no idea. I mean, I don't go around talking about this all the time. Um, And one gentleman was a former New York state police officer. And he, you know, he, he seemed, you know, pretty conservative very passionate about his pension, very passionate, very proud that New York protects public pensions in their state constitution. Very proud of this. But then in the same breath, he said, the taxes there are crazy. We had a rain tax. We had crazy property taxes. And I just sat there and thought, how do you think New York state is protecting your pension in the constitution? They have to get the money somewhere. So it's the same thing. I mean, a bailout, you know, I'm definitely a free market person. And I think sometimes you got to let the market play and there are consequences for bad behavior. So, um, you know, I, I'm not an expert on wall street. I can't speak to some of those things, but I think this idea of the federal government coming and bailing out private entities is a dangerous one. But this case, like I said before, pensions are so personal because that's your retirement. The other thing that's interesting is this pension fund, the people related to it could retire as early as 57 so they're not right. sustainable. That's the other thing that no one right. wants to talk about. Yeah, and people are living too long. Yes, they are. And, <laughs> we gotta, well, we fix that mortality rate. And that's you know part of that. The old pension systems that were invented back in the '40s and '50s was the expectation was that somebody would retire at 65. Same thing with Social Security and live two to three years and die. And now everybody's living longer, so the numbers aren't you know, the funding isn't keeping up. So I have a quick question about the gentleman, the retired cop mm-hmm. from New York. Was he living in Virginia? Mm-hmm. He That's moved the to other Virginia thing. About 10 years ago. So I, you, you and I are tracking in states like New York, the idea of a public pension program is um, you're going to pay back into it when you're retired. You're going to mm-hmm. have you know income tax, you're going to have property tax, sales tax, the out-migration numbers indicate that public employees are leaving states like Connecticut, Illinois, New Jersey, New York at increasing numbers every year and moving to places like South Carolina where there is not a, you know, when you're retired, there's not a tax on your, you know, the income you're drawing on your retirement. So the people are not staying in New York. So this gentleman, I mean, he was really smart and he was really lovely, but he's not in New York paying taxes. He's paying taxes here in Virginia. Right. Right. So that yeah, we see we see all the northerners retirees moving down to where I am, and and you know they're still getting the big fat pension checks from up north, and spending their money down in here in the south. So, and that's it's uh, at some point New York is probably going to have to like somehow build a wall to not let people out. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting because I don't think they like walls up there. So most of their voters don't seem to like walls. One thing that's interesting in preparation for this. I was sort of looking at sort of the history of pensions and how long have they been around. And I found this quote in a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal very, very recently. This is a professor from DePaul. But he cites a quote from 1773, a British, um, you know, like lawmaker, basically said that impositions on the public uh, for these plans are um, they basically it's folly and that the, there's extensive ruin from these types of plans, this defined benefit. So a defined contribution mm-hmm. is what I had as a state employee in South Carolina, where I was able to invest in kind of a 401k style 
I had a pretty high match for my employer and I vested on day one. So I got to take my retirement with me. Uh, it felt, you know, it was a, it was a generous plan that defined benefit. However, if I had taken that program, I had to stay a state employee or I would lose it. Um, and then, you know, the idea is you're going to have your salary for the rest of your life. But I, I just, it, what blew me away was in 1773, economists and lawmakers saw this is not a sustainable plan at all. And again, I, I, I know I keep saying pensions are promised. That's an AFSCME slogan. AFSCME, you know, um, right. lobby about pensions a lot. And I think they're right. I mean, AFSCME's right. Pensions are promised. We're saying if you devote your life to public service and you sign up for this this type of you know package is defined benefit plan. We are going to you know make sure you're taken care of through retirement, and so that's the part to me that's heartbreaking, and that's why I think people are so passionate about pensions. You know, public employees from northern states. Well, I think with regard to like the Teamsters and the multi-employer plans, which are again separate from public sector plans, but I I have not seen anything out there with all these bailouts going on because. The PBGC just announced two more bailouts yesterday, mm -hmm. and there is no talk of revamping the system. And frankly, if you've got multiple employers in an industry that are going out of business and leaving the hook, you know, leaving the other employers on the hook, they're going to go out of business eventually or try to get out. And that becomes an underfunded plan. The system itself is broken. And yes. not to mention the amount of employees. Yes, we have a bunch of seasoned employees who spent 20 years, 30 years with a company that deserve whatever their pension is, right? But now today's workforce, you have people leaving every two to three years. Money's being put in that they'll never see because there's usually a five-year vest on it, right? And so that money's just, it's literally a Ponzi scheme. Again, and I look to the public sector in Connecticut as the playbook. So if you want to see what's going to happen in the future, look to a state like Connecticut. So teachers in Connecticut, when you start in that profession, you pay into the pension immediately. But for the first 10 years, your payments don't count towards your pension. So if you leave, to your point, most people vest, today leave. Right. Right. They're, they're not accruing anything for their own kind of personal account. It's after the 10-year mark that then you say, okay, now you're building towards your own pension. Teachers in Connecticut also don't receive Social Security. They're not paying in, you're not paying a FICA tax. So if you're a young teacher or a new teacher in Connecticut, someone who's changed careers, you're penalized if you leave. So I agree with you. I think another reason that these these plans are so pernicious is because it's harming the younger employee. I mean, it's really interesting to me, this, this wedge between kind of the older employee, the more senior and the younger. I mean, unions love seniority and protecting it. And you see them exploiting this wedge. And in the workplace, it causes a very divisive culture. I hear this over and over and over again from the private and the public, where a new employee, I mean, right off the bat, you're not benefiting from these great benefits that more senior employees get. And I think that's the other side. That's why this is so emotional for someone who's in a, a work system, you know, with a defined benefit plan, you know, with one of these pensions, because it's not just your retirement, it's your workplace culture. I mean, it's today right. I'm paying in, I'm not going to get it. I mean, it just, it breeds animosity that is, it just, it baffles me um, how, you know, these bailouts are not just, some number. I mean, this is these impact real people, and it's not just the people in the pension program. Taxes are going to go up. And the other thing that's fascinating to me: this bailout came from COVID relief. And yeah, I think that's about right. How many people 
How many people from a medical standpoint are still suffering from COVID? How many doctors, there's so much research being done. And it's interesting that, um, I mean, it's, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, I feel like the Biden administration has sort of weaponized so many agencies, federal agencies, but this grab to fund, I mean, what did Biden say? I'm going to be the most pro-union president in history. I got your back. Thanks. Thanks for getting me elected. And then he turns around and does this. So I'm not surprised that it's happening, but it's heartbreaking to watch because so many Americans are struggling right now. And these, you know, nefarious characters who voted and chose to underfund these pensions are getting a pat on the back. So, Well, I think it's, um, who was it that said, uh, don't let a crisis go to waste? Yeah. So, you know, that's, I think, a lot of what happened with the uh, pandemic funding. And the interesting thing is, and again, you know, you and I have probably private, you know, 401ks, IRAs or whatever. We're responsible for making sure our investments are good and, and that sort of thing. And if somebody else on Wall Street screws something up or in Washington screws something up and the stock market goes down and we lose money, we have to figure out a way to pay for that ourselves. That's right. And it's this there's an entitlement there. And the, I think this bailout was long in coming, um, the, especially the central states. Cause that was like 400,000 members and across all the states and, you know, 38 states. But we have this attitude now that, you know, I am my brother's keeper, so to speak, regardless if I, if I have to steal from somebody else to pay for that. That's right. And that's what about, it is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But I also think about, um, the attitude from, you know, the media, but also, uh, you know, lawmakers about unionized employees. And um, so there are a lot of people who are caught in the middle here, you know, truckers, hardworking, you know, really good people who took a job because it was a steady job and it would give them a lifestyle or whatever it was they're looking for. And it had a pension and they didn't vote to underfund this. They are not the problem. And yet I feel like a lot of times when you're talking to people, the the worker gets weaponized. This is union leadership. And I that's the part that kind of kills me. I you know I was reading a lot of coverage on this over the week and I kept seeing sort of the the member, you know, quotes from the member, uh the union member, the worker. And it was sort of um on one hand they glorify the worker, but then those those insults come really quickly. You know, you're a union member, you know, this um you're the the problem. And that is not true. You know, I think that's the part that's really uh, heartbreaking for me is to see, you know, these hardworking Americans trusted their union to represent them well at the bargaining table. They trust their union to take care of them. And time and time again, I see when you're a member of a union, you are giving up your individual voice. You are giving up your power. And in the private sector, you have no choice. You have to pay fees as a condition of that job if you're in a certain state. And that's the part right now that um, is just it just infuriates me. You know, a lot of these workers did not have a choice. They did not have, I got the choice of a defined benefit or a 401k style when I was a state employee. And a lot of these people did not have a choice and they're stuck in this. Yeah. I, I think um, at some point there's going to be a reckoning in terms of either public policymakers or even unions, you know, at the bargaining table to start steering people away from these defined benefit plans because they, they just are not sustainable. And it, it sells it, really well when you're trying to unionize sure. people. I mean, you look at the Starbucks unionization attempts, 
these big promises. Again, the union comes in and over promises and under delivers. I have talked to so many people in the past year who unionized a year later, they still don't have a contract. You know, unions are expensive. You can't hold them accountable and they do not care about the individual. And that's the story that I wish we would shout from the rooftop. Well, that, yeah, that goes to part of the fundamental problem with labor law, at least on the union organizing side. And that is that unions are legally allowed to make promises. Employers are not, but they cannot be held to their promises. That's right. So that is so poetic right there. That is so true. Um, so are you seeing any moves in the public sector, whether it's New York or Connecticut or wherever to, um, basically start shoring up the public sector underfunding? Connecticut. Well, so Connecticut, for example, yes, I've seen, uh, there, there were a few changes recently, um, sort of remanage, you know, the, the fund, but then in Connecticut specifically, they moved the goalpost. So it was like, you know, we need to have X done by, uh, 2050. So they move the goalpost mm-hmm. out so that they can make payments today. Um, so I think the leadership, the governor there is is trying, they have something called CBAC. So it's like this, you know, huge state employee bargaining uh, entity. And um, for the state pension fund, uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it's very unhealthy. So I think lawmakers are trying to tinker with things to make it more healthy today or make it, you know, sustainable today. The problem is they're making promises today to impact people tomorrow. So they make promises that, you know, lawmakers will never be able to deliver on, you know, 2050. So this is what I see coming to the private sector. So this bailout, there's, you know, there's no reforms attached. The the people running the pensions don't have to structure it so that it becomes a healthy system, economic system. Um, I think in Connecticut, we have headlines, in New Jersey, you have headlines where it seems like, okay, we're getting better. We're funding the teacher pension. That's run by the state. Uh, we're funding it in a better way. You know, we're, we're kind of changing the way that we manage it so that it's healthy. But when you really dig into it, that's not sustainable health. So unfortunately, I do not see the public sector pension systems on a pathway to success for the things you mentioned before, out migration, you know, length of life, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, the cost of living, I mean, gracious, gas up there is insanely expensive um, and property taxes and everything else. So um, I don't I don't see that as like a successful story. The problem is you've got these headlines right now, that these little band-aids that make it seem like, oh, we're figuring this out. And they're not. So yeah, there's a, let me just share a quick, interesting statistic. You've been following the FTX cryptocurrency implosion oh. and all that. Oh, yeah. So um, I was trying to get somebody on who I don't understand cryptocurrency, but I know there's been at least two union pensions that were invested in FTX, public yeah. sector funds, right? There's, I think the Ontario Education Association and then a pension fund in Illinois. And then I saw a stat, and this was out of, I think, Forbes magazine uh, about a year ago when crypto was the in thing to go into. 94 to 95% of all public sector pension funds are some somewhere invested in crypto. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about fund managers managing the funds. I'm like, I again, I don't understand it. So, you know, how this whole blockchain and cryptocurrency works. But I would think if your funds are being paid for through tax dollars, which most of these are, somebody would have, would have the foresight to not get into risky ventures like cryptocurrency. Well, the, I don't know if you followed in California the 
protests on, you know, what their state pension uh, plan, you know, whether it's invested in, you know, how it's diversified. Um, there's a whole school of people who say we should not, you know, public funds or pensions should not be linked to things like natural gas or fracking or things to do with right. you know, the environment. And the reality is, you know, if it's a public pension plan, you've got to do everything you can to ensure the health of that plan. And so you're going to have a diverse portfolio. You're going to invest in real estate and natural resources and things like that. So I think the fact that that's been politicized and the like social justice aspect of it, no one says at the end of the day, again, no one talks about the worker. No one says, well, you know what? We have to make sure that this person has the most sound pension system possible so that we can deliver on that promise. That never comes up. Instead, these systems, I mean, it's just fascinating to me. They're used time and time again, these pension systems to fund, you know, bad behavior, unrealistic Mm -hmm. promises, and then, you know, these political motivators, you know, we're going to draw all this money out of, you know, the, the gas industry you know, the oil and gas industry, um, it it just, that's the, I wish more media would cover sort of that hypocrisy, you know, that at the end of the day, this is uh, an agreement you made with these employees. This is a benefit of their job and you should do everything you can to deliver on that. Um, and instead it becomes this highly political it was interesting watching the press conference. Did you watch the press conference when Biden was like, I'm the best, I'm paying. Yeah, just clips of it. And the other thing, I mean, he's sort of crass, you know, he sort of inserts a cuss word here. And, and, and I just, I thought, does anyone buy this, this guy in this slick suit from Delaware who, you know, I don't know if he's ever worked a blue collar job. I'm not sure, but, you know, making these promises, I mean, do people buy this? It, it just felt so, I mean, it felt like straight out of central casting, you know, the villain in the suit, you know, so that was interesting. Well, he had, uh, the clips I saw, he had Sean O'Brien, who's head of the Teamsters, standing behind him, and several others, union leaders. Mm-hmm. And I, you mentioned from central casting. I mean, the script was written for him. And I think they knew this was coming, you know, back during the pandemic. Let's use all this chaos to get what we need passed to reward our buddies. That's right. And, That's and right. we were going to have to, somebody was going to have to do something with these pensions at some point, but what they've done is they have given, they've literally just given the money with no re repayment to it. That's right. And, and that's, I guess that's somewhat frustrating. Of course, we're giving billions of dollars to Ukraine too. And I don't think we're going to get repayment on that. Somebody will, but not us. Yeah, no, it's, it is a really weird time for economics. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's printing money and, and somebody's going to pay the piper at some point. That's right. The, um, so what else are you folks working at at, at AFFT? Yeah, well, we got a couple things. Working One, on. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've ever been in a state that is unionized by public employee or public unions, but you'll have public employees show up at the state capitol on certain days. Mm-hmm. It's really a sight to see. A busload of people. Everyone gets off in like their purple SEIU shirt. You know, they have a free lunch and they're there to show support for whatever bill the union is backing. If you talk to many of these people, they'll say, oh, I don't know why we're here. I got a free day off and a lunch and a trip to Hartford um, or Albany or wherever. Um, and we found in our membership program, so again, we have totally free. We offer like retail benefits just like the union does and scholarships to union alternatives like Christian educators and things like that. Uh, but we kept hearing from our members like we we want to talk like 
Someone give us a microphone. You know, the union always says that they're like PSCA, the NEA chapter in Pennsylvania has a magazine called The Voice. And the idea is that we're giving, you know, our members a voice. But no, it's the union who has the voice. So our members, uh, AFFT members kept saying, like, we we want to talk to media and lawmakers. So we developed a legislative training program with a state think tank in Pennsylvania called the Commonwealth Foundation. And we had public employees testify on behalf of what we call worker freedom laws. So, you know, you know that you don't have to be a member of a union as a public employee. You know, you you have to sign a card that says you cannot take, you know, dues out of my paycheck kind of thing. Um, And it was incredible. So we had a teacher testify, uh, a public school teacher from Pennsylvania, and she testified before the House Labor and Industry Committee in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The entire Democratic Party on that committee got up and walked out on this woman. This is a public employee. Really? <laughs> yeah. And that fired up our members. So that's one thing we're working on is taking this legislative training program to more states, giving uh, public employees the chance, giving them training. And then, you know, we do a lot of work, you know, helping them write up ads or place them and, you know, get trained to talk to media, talk to lawmakers. Um, so we don't lobby, but, you know, our members want to talk to their lawmakers. So we'll kind of point them to resources to help them be equipped to do that. That is very exciting right now because I think a lot of our public employees have felt sidelined and marginalized in the workplace and they have a story they want to tell. And I think what they want to say more and more and more is like, we are not a small minority. There are a lot of people who are upset with union behavior right now in the public sector. So that's been fun. And then one little thing um, that we're in the middle of that uh, Politico wrote about this. So I think I'm allowed to tell you a snippet and I can't wait to tell you more after this unfolds, but uh, AFFT is suing the U S postal service because uh, if you got a free COVID test um, on their website through the postal service, um, when you submitted your information, there was a box that came up with a bunch of text I read it because I apparently have nothing better to do. And I noticed that uh, it said, we can give your information to members of Congress, you know, some other things. And there were these little funky letters, you know, it was a statute um, next to it. And then I noticed it said, we can give your information to labor organizations, no statute. Really? Yeah. So we're trying to get to the bottom of it. We submitted some FOIAs trying to see how that goes. Um, We are in the middle of a, you know, the court case. So that's, I mean, that's been printed. So I feel like I'm okay to say that the lawyers won't get upset. That should have been our lead topic today. I have not heard that. I, I cannot tell you how much time I've spent on this. Um, but I will have answers very soon. So I'm excited to come back and talk to you about that. Um, so, so let me just circle back on this. God, I hate that term, but so, so people who signed up to get COVID tests through the post office? That's right. That's right. Okay, so this was the COVID test program that the Biden administration put out and to get everybody three or four test kits at home. That's right. And in the fine print, it said, we can give your information to labor unions. That's right. Labor organizations. So over 70 million households, which is more than half the households in America, participate in this program. So I participated. I actually did this with a colleague. So at the time, I lived in the District of Columbia, and my friend lived in South Carolina, and we wanted to test. When you signed up, it said, we will send the test to the places that have the greatest need. And we were joking. And I said, well, I live in Navy Blue, D.C., so I'll get my test before you do. And I did. I got it six weeks before she did. But as part of this, we both noticed this language, and we were just, like, gobsmacked. Like, you're giving my information to Marty Walsh. Like, what? And I can't get an answer. So, I mean, we're in the process of that. We'll see where it lands. But 
what's also troubling is the Biden administration. Uh, I saw this in Daily Mail, wonderful publication, but um, they're relaunching the free COVID test policy. Or program. I just saw that too. Yeah. So um, at first, you know, my tenfold hat firmly on my head sort of indicated, oh, maybe this is a way to collect really fresh, accurate data ahead of the midterms. I don't know. Your mind is spinning. Um, but when they shuttered the program, it was like, all right, let's just figure out what happened. Why did you give this information? You know, there's no statute that says they can. So that's where we were kind of curious. And obviously, we're still figuring that out. But when I saw the headline yesterday that they're, you know, resurrecting the program, I thought, okay, my gosh, really? Like, uh, so like I said, that's kind of all I know right now. We're still waiting to get information from our FOIAs. But um, it. Like I said, this I said this before, and I don't use this word lightly. This administration is weaponizing aspects of our government. And it's I think with the labor union, you see that very clearly. You know, DOL feels very tricky right now. The NLRB, I mean, there were over, I think, twenty thousand comments. Oh, might be off. I think it was over twenty thousand comments on the joint venture joint venture rule proposed by the NLRB. Oh, joint employer. Yeah, and yeah. sorry, joint venture. Please do not touch joint <laughs> labor, please. Um, and I, I read through a lot of those, and I thought, does does this matter right now? I don't know. I think as an American, everyday American citizen, you kind of feel like your voice is lost in this crowd. Um, and again, that goes back to, I think, for a lot of union members, they feel like their voice is silenced by this larger collective pushing a political agenda. And, you know, there are so many people in America who love the idea of a union. They want to be in a union. You know, they want to be in a local union that serves their needs. It's very hard to find one that's not politicized. You know, the funny thing is that the administration and unions and reporters say that, you know, unions are more popular than ever. The Gallup poll at Labor Day said that 72% of Americans like unions. And then further in that poll, which nobody talks about, 58% of the non-union people, Americans, don't want a union in their workplace. So, yes, we support them, but we just don't want them for ourselves. It's like Congress. You know, I love my congressperson. Actually, I don't love my congressperson, but uh, I don't like Congress. And so um, I think it's kind of the flip. I love my local union. I love the idea of a union. But then when it's like, do you want to be in a union? No. Do you like the larger union? No. Um, So. It, it definitely, when you're in a unionized workplace, it impacts your career in monumental ways that, you know, most people don't realize. So, uh, like, I talked to a journalist in Connecticut, and he said, I love unions, but if I had been a unionized worker in the newsroom, I would not have the career I have today. And he said, I realize I'm a hypocrite, but I thought, well, okay, at least you realize it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, part of, and so I'm an ex-union rep and all that sort of stuff, and part of it is... Um, the unions there, it's our insurance, so to speak. I, you know, as a, even a, a young local leader, I knew who the president of the international union was, but w- if I ran into him on the street, I wouldn't. And, you know, who cares? You know, we had one of the, the CWA, which is my old union, came to our plant, and I'm going back to the 1980s. And, you know, we we're allowed to talk to him in the lunchroom and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, who is this old man? It's like, you know, it's just, they're there. Unions, if you're a worker, they're there. But most union members don't have really any need for a union, excepting for the bottom 10% that always get in trouble. 
they unions feel like an anachronism. You know, I can see a place in history where they did this really incredible work as far as shaping labor law. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you look way back. I mean, I hear it every Labor Day, you know. But today, I think unions are fighting to stay relevant, and that's why they make these huge promises that underfund these pensions. They say, oh, we're going to give you the sky and the moon and the stars and everything in it, and they can't deliver on it, so they have to, you know, do something extreme, like take money out of these pension funds. And I think that's also why unions have turned to political activity, because, again, it's this bigger picture. We're fighting to save our world. We're fighting to save our children. It's like your SEIU. You don't represent children. Teachers unions don't represent children. They represent teachers. So I think that's one of these kind of distractionary tactics that's happening right now with the the politicization of um just the public employee, you know, even private, you know, activating these people to go and door knock for different candidates it has nothing to do with representing the person at the bargaining table. But I think because unions at this point, I mean, what are they going to promise that's so compelling that someone gives up, you know, $1,200 a year and their voice and their individual power handed over to a union? So that's why I think unions kind of give you all these other things because for the member, it becomes, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to union members and union membership becomes not just about their experience in the workplace, but making the world better and, and tackling climate change. And like that right. has nothing to do with, you right. know, with the workplace. Yeah, that, um, and I've, so I'm somewhat libertarian. I was somewhat that way, even when I was a union guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt that the union, and I was in a right to work state that I grew up in Arizona. I always felt that the union is a business and it needs to do the best job it can for the workers on the factory floor. Yes. And I remember having this argument with a VP of the local when I was still either a steward or chief steward. It wasn't an argument argument, but it was a conversation where I, I expressed that. And he said, well, we're also a social movement too. And so the issues of that day, you know, 30 plus years ago was healthcare, this was around the you know, 80, 90 time frame. And it was healthcare. It was um, got the gays and the Boy Scouts, you know, that sort of thing. And, but they've, they've transitioned. And I, I said this recently in one of the posts, you know, when you, or I think it was a podcast, when you've got like 44% of your membership or 40% of your membership that stands on one side of the aisle, on a specific political issue, why get into that political issue? You're going to alienate your members. It's just when bad business. When the when the worker is forced to pay you fees as a condition of employment, right. you can do whatever you want. You can do right. whatever you want. Do you ever feel like this this like the big labor movement is a, is a religion? It it has cult like tendencies, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's part of. You touched on this a few minutes ago about. Um, the government paternalism, which I you know, use the term, but this is my term for it. Um, you've got government doing what unions used to do. So you've got labor laws, you've got safety laws, all that sort of stuff. OSHA, they lobbied successfully to get them in. You've got social security. You've got um, minimum wage laws. Now, may, may they rise? Sure. But you've got part of the decline of unions has been that the government has taken over what they used to do. That's right. Just recently, I think it was this past week, in uh, New York City, they're starting to enact um, just cause laws for all workers in the city. 
And so if they do just cause laws, and I'm sitting here looking at it as a former union rep, well, if the government's protecting workers on the job from at-will employment and unjust firings, what's the purpose of having a union? That's right. And now, so they're, now their last thing is, okay, we're just going to be lobbying organizations. I mean, when you look at the political spending, so the NEA spends $2 on politics, a political activity, for every $1 on membership-related activity. Hmm. That's when you see the bigger picture. I mean, we do a lot of research at AFFT on where union dues go for public employees. Right. It's mind-blowing. And we have all these charts. You can go on our website and look and see all these different pie charts, you know, beautifully decorated. And it's mainly, like, huge swaths of the pie chart for political spending and then this sliver for members. And there are people in the workplace who have real needs, very serious needs in their union, like, you know, grievances. You think all the time, like, well, if I have a union, I can file a grievance, and they're going to they're gonna represent me in the workplace. They're going to take care of me. <laughs> the union can deny to grieve your issue, you know? Yeah, you know, Elizabeth, you don't know my background that much, but that's no. why I became a union rep, because I, I literally had, that was my first lesson in labor law as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, you know, factory worker was, I thought the unions, I was a union member, had to represent me to my liking. That's right. And they don't. And yeah. so I wanted to have a grievance filed on a write-up, and the union said, well, it's the supervisor's word against yours, so I'm not going to do that. I was like, right. well, screw you, I'll do it myself. So that's I became right. a union rep. That's right. But, yeah, I think that's an important message that people, especially right now in the Starbucks and the Apples and all these places, right. they need to hear that that the union, this is not there to, like you said, to do things to your liking. It's a business. It's a really yeah. big labor is a big business. It's a corporation, basically. So Yeah. Well, I think Starbucks kids will learn some of this the hard way. But. You know what, though? I think some of these unionization attempts are forcing the employer, like an Amazon, to step up. You know, I mean... Maybe they should pay more competitive wages. I mean, to me, that's a free market um, approach. You know, I think that if the employees are getting together and saying, you know, we are going to walk out or we're going to quit, then the employer says, nope, we want to keep you. So I think, you know, we do need to make sure we take care of employees in America. We need to make sure they're paid well and, you know, we honor our promises to them. I don't think you need a union to get that today, though. I think you can do well. You know, to that end, and, and this has not been brought up that much in the press. I don't think it's been brought up at all. So the whole Amazon thing, and we're not paying or Amazon's not paying their employees enough, the Amazon workers in the the warehouses, their starting pay is actually a dollar to two dollars more than UPS warehouse workers in their contract who are already unionized. Wow. And so and Amazon was smart in doing that. They've got good benefits and all that sort of stuff. Now, I'm not talking about UPS drivers. I'm talking about UPS warehouse workers. So as a result of that, what we're going to wind up seeing next year, because Teamsters want to unionize Amazon, of course, but they're already being paid more than the UPS workers, right? So UPS is likely going to have a strike next year so that they can go above and beyond Amazon. Wow. And that's kind of like the hidden story, but, you know, and part of the issue with the UPS and Sean O'Brien, who's the new te- the new president of Teamsters, is Hoffa sold out the UPS workers last year or two years ago, I think. Yeah, they they imposed the contract on the UPS workers, but the, this you know none of the of course you've got union friendly media, whether it's Bloomberg or Vice or Washington Post, so they're not really telling the whole story. That's right, and you know that's an underlying issue that 
is going on with the Amazons. That's right. That's right. It's really fascinating. I mean, this is such a tangled web. There are yeah. times I hear stories like that, and I think this is this can't be true, but it is. It's all it's all. Yeah, true. I I don't know what the current numbers are, but about a year and a half ago, when Amazon raised its entry level to say fifteen dollars an hour or whatever, mm-hmm. the UPS contract was still at thirteen fifty. Mm-hmm. So I saw an ad in DC last year that starting pay at a, some facility was, I think it was like $23 an hour um, in near DC. Yeah. So um, I, I thought, my gosh, like, well, do I need to think about changing my career? No, but um, yeah, you know, but I, I do, for me, it's like at the end of the day, you know, I think people should be taken care of. Um, so it's, it's encouraging to see companies stepping up and saying, we're going to pay a competitive wage and uh, we're going to provide benefits, all those types of things. But um, it just, it's, I, I wish more people would come forward. I mean, we helped a group of teachers decertify outside Pittsburgh because after a year, the union did not deliver on their promise, their contract. I mean, just lots of problems, but they really, really wanted to unionize. And so I want to tell more stories about people get their union. And then a year later, they're in a worse condition than they were. They're paid less than they were. Right. This happens all the time. Um, I mean, I tell kids at Starbucks, I mean, or co- I mean, I'll talk to anyone about this. My husband, I think is mortified when I just start striking out conversations, but I I'll share these stories sometimes with somebody at Starbucks and they're like, really? I'm like, oh yeah, Google it. Yeah. Yeah. So, or bring it, whatever you want, whatever platform or duck, duck, go you, your platform or your choice, look it up. Right. So, yeah. so Elizabeth, tell people where, where they can reach you or reach AFFT and, and some of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we are Americans for fair treatment or AFFT.org. Uh, we've got a lot of information on our website, our email addresses, our staff, uh, our email addresses are on the website. Um, and we, like I said, we provide a free membership program for public employees, but we also provide a lot of information about union political spending and activity for just the average interested person um, so we have a really robust news page. Uh, we write about uh, a little bit of private, but a lot of public sector issues. Um, so my hope is that as people get more engaged, especially in places like Virginia, where unions are growing, uh, they can kind of see the impact and look at states like a Pennsylvania and say, that's what happens 20 years after collective bargaining. So that we have, I would love to see more empowered and educated voters pushing back on, you know, union expansion. Um, so that's one thing you'll see on our website. If you're not a union member, if you don't live in a Northern state, you know, where we're working, I think there's still information that AFFT can provide that's of interest um, because unions are everywhere. <laughs> right. And depending on the administration, they're kind of pushing further into everywhere. That's right. That's right. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm going to put the links, um, AFFT's links and some of the other stuff under the audio portion of this. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed meeting you. It was fun. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Elizabeth Messenger from the Americans for Fair Treatment. And although we had a very robust conversation, one of the things that really hit me like a, a smack on the head, so to speak, was the fact that the United States Postal Service has the ability in its privacy statement to give customer contact information to labor organizations. And it says where applicable. So after we were done recording, I went to the Postal Service's website and went to order some Kwanzaa stamps. And 
In fact, the language is there. So check it out for yourself. Go to order a COVID kit or a stamp or whatever, and you'll see in the paragraph way down before you check out as a guest, the language in there that says that they can give your information to labor organizations. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or drop a line under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening. Take care. Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.